Hello, welcome to Question Block. I'm Alex, or Wires of NYC, and with me is... Aerialist, hi! Ariel, I noticed when we started this episode, you weren't smiling. You had a pretty neutral expression. Why is that? My Mona Lisa smile. (laughs) Because we are talking about the Renaissance. Woo! The Florentian Renaissance. The the Ninja Turtles Renaissance. Yes. Which you said you had a friend who didn't know that that's where their names came from. Yeah. Yeah, the Ninja Turtles are named after the... The Renaissance men. What about Splinter? <laughs> yeah, Krang, the like Renaissance <laughs> painter. He was one um, of the popes, <laughs> Pope yeah, Krang. I bet Pope Shredder. Battle Pope. Yeah, I like got very excited while researching this episode because I don't know how the New York City like school curriculum is. We studied the Middle Ages and like the Renaissance when I was in fourth grade, and they made it seem so lame. We had to like play a song on our flutes, like on a recorder. <laughs> And learn like a dance that sucked where we like walked in a circle or whatever. And they like taught us all, I guess, the religious aspects of the Middle Ages and just peasant farmers. It was lame. Whereas the Italian Renaissance kind of sounds like it's a Lower East Side in the 1980s. It's basically they taught you everything that's not the Renaissance, like everything that it was the opposite. They were like opposite day. Pretty much. They just totally lied to us, which is ridiculous because the Renaissance is so cool. And like we were saying, the term Renaissance man refers to somebody who's skilled in multiple different fields or arts. Yeah, they're all prodigies. They're all Italians who lived from like the mid-1300s to the mid-1500s. They're all men. We love And they're all men. We love that. They're all gay, except for one. They are. They're all Italians. But they're uh, pretty amazingly skilled. It's just like prodigy after prodigy of like these incredibly skilled artists. And every one of them is like a triple threat. It's like, oh, yeah. Poet, sculptor, writer, painter. <laughs> we'll get to a few who you don't some approve of. Them, of. Some of them, I think, fake it till they make it. Yeah. Some of them copy. Some of them murder. So it's it's worth just uh, saying so nobody tries to correct us. Um, there were other renaissances or periods known as renaissances. For example, the Harlem Renaissance or even earlier Middle Ages renaissances. We're specifically talking about the Italian Renaissance, the humanist renaissance, and the term renaissance was coined by this Italian Renaissance man named Vasari, who is a writer, and it means rebirth. I'm laughing because I don't think he was skilled in, I think he was skilled at writing. No, he just kind of slipped in there because he was a historian. He was, yeah, he would hang out with all the artists and he was like, look, I can do art too. And they were like, that's cute. But then he was writing about them. And he kind of was gossipy. He was like, ooh, here's the tea. And he definitely like talked up the, the ones that were like his boys and the uh, and yeah. some of the other ones he was like mm. we'll get to Vasari at the end though because he's he's later in the 1500s so how did this all start how did the rebirth start because there's kind of the what's called the dark ages or the middle ages uh where everything sucked after the fall of the roman empire for like hundreds and hundreds of years and then so there's a couple things that play into it so one is climate change actually the medieval warm period ended and there was like a long century long cold spell called the little ice age During the like medieval warm period, the population had grown a lot 
And suddenly, like, the harvests and crops, like, didn't do as well. So lots of people starved. The Black Death started up. And a bunch of people had moved into cities in the, like, 1200s, and suddenly they were in all these dense living conditions without sanitation. So the Black Death killed off, like, a quarter up to, like, half of Europe in some cities over, like, 50 years. So tons of people dying. Uh, and then a bunch of wars had been going on, and they kind of burned out. So the, the Hundred Years' War had been going on. Which had like shut down. How many down years? For how many years? For how, how many years? For yeah. 200 years. The Hundred Years War had been going on for 200 years. So that shut down like a bunch of commerce in, in Northwestern Europe because it was between France and England. Although it had a knock on effect because King Edward III of England at some point repudiated his debts. He was like, I'm at war. I'm not paying my debt. And his two biggest debtors were the two largest Florentine banks those of the Bardi and Peruzzi houses. So those guys, I'm not going to steal your thunder, those guys went bankrupt. So two major banking houses got wiped out also. So things were very bad in like the 1250s until the early 1300s. Can I say, though, why he wasn't punished for that? Like why that was able to happen? Yeah, why? Because you couldn't charge interest mm-hmm. unless you were Jewish. The Old Testament, the Jewish Bible... It did say something about not being a loan shark, but it was like interpreted in their own way. So like that's actually why a lot of uh, stereotypes about Jewish people being like, you know, the money penny, penny pinchers. And it's actually they were Jesus, at the time. Jesus flipping tables in the yep. money lenders temple. Yeah. Yes. That was was based on the fact that they were all the loan sharks. So you could not charge interest on a loan or you couldn't like punish people for not paying back on time because that was against papal It was like, yeah, the, the Pope had decreed that you couldn't lend with interest, which is like, why would you ever issue a loan if you don't, if you can't charge interest on it? You're just tying up your capital. And like, you need some, something needs to pay you for the risk of like issuing the loan. Yes, they didn't see it as risk though. They, they saw it as you going against God because God like wouldn't let someone cheat you out of money. And so like you're just making a gain on someone. So anyway, that's how that happened. There also were laws enforced by some local religious authorities that Christians couldn't trade with or even like do commerce with non-Christians. You could, you could trade with Jews. Oh, maybe. Yeah. And then it was okay. But But that's the, you know. Sure. But in Italy and particularly the geography is very important here as well, because the Mediterranean was kind of the key trading route to get from the Far East or the Orient or from Africa or any of those places into Europe. You had to go through, you had to cross the Mediterranean and generally goods would get would land in Italy. And Florence is not, is like, it's a, a ways inland, but it's not too far inland from the western coast of Italy in kind of like two thirds of the way up the Italian peninsula. So it's in like a good place to like, if you bring in textiles from there. And then it's also like, it's in the midway point between Europe and the Orient. So major trading area. Yes. What else sparked the Renaissance? Okay. So all this stuff, all this bad stuff happens. Uh, A bunch of people get wiped out. And so it actually led to sort of like a coronavirus thing, I guess, Um, because there were less people, there was a a laborer shortage. They're like, people don't want to work anymore. So wages went way up. And so you had this burgeoning middle class. Um, Suddenly it was like, landowners had to compete a lot more for laborers. And the final argument is that because also things were collapsing at this time, in many cases, and commerce was like pretty bad right at the end of the 1300s, that normally people who did make money through commerce would have reinvested the money into like growing their business, but there really weren't enough business prospects. So instead, the wealthy spent their money as patrons of like the art and sciences. And the final one is the fall of the Byzantine Empire, which meant a bunch of Greek scholars 
had to escape. And so they needed to, a lot of them escaped from Greece or Macedonia. They uh, <laughs> fled to Italy and Italy had all the Roman texts, but the Greek texts, which included a lot of like the more humanist ideals, right? The Romans had all these engineering documents, but the Greeks had the philosophy and the plays and the literature. All those documents had been lost and weren't being studied. So the Renaissance was the rebirth and rediscovery of the, those documents. We're going to talk about three writers who really kick off the early Renaissance, and they're known as the the three the three crones, the tre corone of Italian literature. Right, so Petrarch is one of them, or sounds Greek. Francesco Petrarca is he Greek? Um, scholar and poet, no, of of Italy. Oh, okay, one of the earliest humanists. Um, so he was, I guess he he was a poet, but he's more known for his scholarship, I think. Uh, so he just rediscovered Cicero, and introduced that. Uh, so it discovered these ancient like Greek writings. Uh. Yeah. So he's in like the, this is like the mid-1300s. He was preceded by Dante. Dante in the early 1300s published his Divine Comedy. A fun thing to know about or remember Dante is that uh, Dante's guide in the, throughout the Divine Comedy, which is like three parts, but like in the Inferno, his guide is Beatrice. who's like a saint. Oh, no. And uh, Dante throughout his entire life had like an unrequited crush on this woman named Beatrice who lived in Florence. So he first he first met her. Beatrice Portinari, who was the daughter of a merchant, and he fell in love with her at first sight when he was nine and she was eight. However, I guess they did arrange marriages in Florence at the time. So when he was 12, he was promised to Gemma di Manetto Donati, uh, a member of another fa- the, of the powerful Donati family. The donor and at, at that time, it was common for you to be like there to be a contract and you to be signed into marriage when you were like 12 years old. So Dante would see Beatrice around, but he could never be with her. And uh, it established or is like one of these early instances of what was called courtly love. This is actually going to be very similar, I guess, to the Romantic period. There are a lot of parallels. Mm-hmm. And we talked about the Romantic period, you know, before, I guess. On, I forget which episode that was when we talked about Oscar Wilde. That idea of the, I don't know, human virtues or unrequited love or courtly love and being emotional and basically, you know, everything that humanity is about, that's what the Renaissance is going to capture. So Dante wrote the... The Inferno? Yeah, he was a really (laughs) unsuccessful politician and got exiled from Florence. They all did. Spoiler alert, all the writers, (laughs) they all got exiled, came back, got exiled, came back. It's like all happened. Yeah, so Florence in part because the it wasn't the Catholic Church running stuff. It was a bunch of different merchants kind of like jockeying for power back and forth. Is that these different political factions would like come into power and kick out all of their opponents. So there were a lot of exiles going on or public apologies going on. Well... Also, some of the merchants became popes. So yeah, yeah, these were this Even is like different than the pope now. Like you could have kids, you could have sex, you could yeah. could murder, do all these these pope things. But you're talking about the what the um. This is the gulfs. Dante was a white gulf, but the black gulfs took power in 1301. He was exiled to Verona. You're talking about the sort of like the mayors. Yeah, and. Yeah, so like for example, Machiavelli was one of these mayors later on. They they were voted every two months, I think. And it was kind of like the president it was like it sounds to me like a community board meeting. Like you would meet up, all the names would be picked out of a like a leather sack, and then people would just like applaud. But there would be 
you know. No, with the Gulfs, there was actual violence. And so, like. Well, there were mercenaries, too. You're talking about sure. the, the people would hire mercenaries to, like. So, not quite a community board. Stuff. Dante yeah. actually was, like, forced out through violence. And they said if he, like, publicly apologized, they would let him come back. And he refused. Uh, and they accused him of, like, embezzlement and yeah. whatever other stuff. So, since he wouldn't apologize, they declared that if he ever showed up in uh, Florence again, uh, they would burn him at the stake. Okay. So, he didn't come back. Okay. We have so much so to got, go through. All right. So we got Petrarch, we got Dante, and our third uh, major writer from the late 1300s is Boccaccio. Uh, he wrote the Decameron, um, and there's a bunch of like, a ton of like modern reinterpretations of it. Canterbury Tales borrows a lot from it, but it's a story, it's a frame story. So it's a bunch of like noble men and women who are escaping the Black Plague, and they go hang out in a... Uh, like a, a villa outside Florence and they tell each other stories to pass the time. Oh my God, the seventh seal. Yeah. It's very, what? the seventh seal definitely borrows a lot from the Decameron as well. So, wow. One of like super influential uh, early Italian work. Okay. And these, these were this is like some of the first writings I think that were not like biblical, <laughs> just crazy that were like, <clears throat> yeah, it's circulated. true. Just about, you know, people. Well, yeah. Oh, and Boccaccio also, because he was this famous writer, originally Dante's writing was just called The Comedy, and, and Boccaccio called it, he he was like, it's The Divine Comedy. Oh. He mm-hmm. named it The mm-hmm. Divine Comedy. And everyone was like, yeah, you're right. It is pretty good. And the printing press was around this time, too, and people were like freaking, or like it's a little later, 1400s, people were like freaking out about it. It's like the way that we feel about like email. Like people were like, this is the end of times. Sure. Although the Gutenberg's press was used to make Bibles, right? The Gutenberg Bible is like the, the classic thing that they just ran off copies of that at first. But I'm sure they eventually got to printing copies of the, the Divine Comedy. Yeah, so it's you can go read the Decameron. It's you know been translated into English, um, and it's like has a bunch of pretty good stories in it. Mm. Okay, with that, that's your, that's your early writers of the early Renaissance. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Ariel, if you want to introduce us to some of... Uh, Medici's. Yeah. Who was funding all these artists? The Medici's. So the Medici's were, were originally a textile factory. And then there was like this distant guy, like this distant one who like wasn't super good at textiles and kind of owned like a bank a little bit. And when he died, he passed it on to his heirs, basically. Cosimo Medici is like he controlled the most important branch of the Medici bank. And the reason why this bank was so became so successful under Cosimo was because they figured out a way around the interest mm. thing. Basically, so they use, there's this thing called the bill of exchange, which is like the exchange rate. You know, let's say they use textiles in their bank, like in the branches of the bank. So let's say you wanted to like, uh, sell some fabric to France and then and then send money from France like back to Florence. It have it would have the exchange rate would have to like change three times, basically. And so they fudged how much the exchange rate was to to charge interest. Also, during this time, it's worth noting France had like an an emperor and was like much more unified. Italy at this time period was a bunch of basically city states. So, like, Florence had previously gone to war with, like, Milan. Uh, and, like, Rome was, like, also totally different, like, local government, different money. So, uh, 
the currency of Florence was the florin. But that's so, true. Yeah. So right. So there, you need exchange rates. You need your own local mint. Um, they're like, yeah, you have to run basically a whole country out of this like you know city state. So that's why they had the this independence. That's why like Florence is so unique compared to say other cities in Italy at this time period. So yeah, the the Medici and specifically, I think the trade was you buy like silk and cloth from you know Asia from some trade route. Uh, going to like India or even all the way to China and you get uh, dyes from like Northern Europe and then you like create the actual clothing. You create like the textiles. That dye was discovered, I think in the 1500s in Florence. Okay. So there's, there's Cosimo, Piero and Lorenzo Medici. They like ruled over Florence throughout the 15th century. The most important ones are Lorenzo and Giuliano. And Lorenzo is like, you will know who Lorenzo looks like. Because like Assassin's Creed. Like I, I saw a picture of him and I'm like, oh yeah, that guy. He has like the page haircut, like dark hair, really bad nose. He's wearing like red. I think he has like a little hat. <laughs> you like if you saw a picture of him, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's him. Right. And then he has his little brother, uh, Giuliano. And they'll come, they'll come into importance like later. But they, they also, because they have like this extra money, they're kind of like, they kind of feel bad about charging interest. So they invest a lot of it in artists as well. So they, they like finance all of our Renaissance boys. Also a bunch of schools. They founded like academies and colleges as well. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So the, uh, yeah. And he became, just to give you a sense of like how important like Cosimo was, for example, uh, the Byzantine emperor attended a council in Florence trying to unify the Eastern and Western churches. So like the whole fate of like Catholicism is here and he like comes to Florence uh, to have Cosimo basically like help him negotiate this thing. I guess at that time, the the Byzantine empire then fell shortly after. He was he, like, I don't know, he was like, we should collect these books and like study them. Yeah. So he like founded like these Neoplatonic like universities. And he he was a big funder of Donatello, who we will get to. So we're going to talk about a little bit about the Duomo. El Duomo. El Duomo. And the dome. The dome for the Duomo. <laughs> the dome Duomo. And then a little bit about the Posse conspiracy, which actually happened later, but it happened there. So we'll tie it. We'll like tie it all up. So El Duomo is a great example of the architecture of the time, because we're going to talk all about the sculptors and painters, right? Yes. Like your Renaissance men. But a bunch of them were also architects, and they kind of saw them as like interchangeable. They're like, if you can paint a painting, you can build a building. Okay, so there's the 1401. Mm-hmm. There's a competition. There are a lot of competitions in the city of Florence to build certain things. So they needed new bronze doors, the, basically the doors of heaven um, for St. John. Gilberti and Brunelleschi, Phil, Lorenzo Gilberti. Gilberti and Filipino or Filippo Brunelleschi. They submit their designs and they it's a tie and they have to like work on the doors together. And Brunelleschi's like, fuck no, he's really pissed. And he withdraws, he lets Gilberti just like work on the project and he's like, I, I'm I'm gonna like move on to architecture and like move away from like Move away um, from the doors. Move, like, what is it? Like, bron- like metal work. He's like, fuck metal. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build shit. These doors take Gilberti a really long time. 
Gilberti's like the younger, more like newfangled one, and he, the doors like tie him up, so he hasn't like been able to learn. Meanwhile, Brunelleschi's like this architecture stuff. It takes forever, though, right? You said they had the competition in 1401. They still haven't put a roof on the building by 1418. Oh, so this is different. So th this th their rivalry comes back later. I'm priming you. Oh, okay. This has nothing to do with the Duomo. Well, the only thing it has to do with the Duomo is like the two people involved. It's for St. John. Years and years later, the Duomo is there and it needs a dome. There's a gaping hole and people don't know how to like build the dome. So they hold another competition and Gilberti and Brunelleschi back, back, back at it again. But this time Brunelleschi's like been around the local world. He's been hanging out with Donatello. They've been being gay together. They went to Rome and dug up all these old like bodies and um, architects, architecture works and sculptures. And they've like been just like gourmands of the arts. Whereas Gilberti's just been working on the doors. So he actually loses this competition. And Brunelleschi builds the dome without a flying buttress and without like scaffolding, which is really cool. I don't know if you still can. When I, I visited like 20 years ago and you could walk up like the staircase that's kind of like built into the side of the dome and actually come out like on the roof at the top of it. Oh, wow. Which has this, yeah, absolutely awe-inspiring view of Florence. And you know that just, right, Il Duomo is the, I don't know if that's actually the official name of the cathedral, but like it's very funny they call it that because it's just a cathedral with an absolutely massive dome on it. But I guess they did they name it that before the dome or after? I don't know. Literally, <laughs> were there like probably? I think after. I think that it probably is a cathedral of some saint. But then the name that everybody calls it is they're like, yeah, it's the dome. It's that dome over there. But it is funny. It'd be like calling, I don't know, just naming a building after the shape of the building. Right. Okay. So quick, like fast forward, fourteen seventy eight. We have the Medici's. Yeah, so Ugly Lorenzo and, like, Hot Giuliano. Uh, there's a conspiracy by the Pazzi, the Pazzi family. They want to kill them. And they go to Pope, my favorite, Pope Sixtus, Pope Sixtus the Fourth, which is like, what? Um, so they, they go to him, and they're like, hey, can we, can we do, like, a murder on Easter? And the Pope is like, I can't tell you to do that. And, like, meanwhile, he's, like, nodding. You know, he's like, I can't say to do it as a pope, but, like, do it. And this happens at the Duomo on Easter. Po like, priests get involved. It goes kind of wrong because they don't end up getting Lorenzo. I think, yeah, they, they immediately kill his brother. And he just gets, like, a scar. And then I think the Pazzi, like, freaks out and stabs himself. <laughs> like in the stomach or something um but yeah that happens in duomo and it's like a whole big thing what is a posse it's like a, a person a position yeah the posse family p-a-z-z-i okay. okay it's the it's like the yeah the uh capulets and the montague okay so they feel the assassination attempt yeah happens at the duomo yeah it's it's like a they call it like a conspiracy and i'm like well it's so also in this period of like the early Renaissance, I have two more people to talk about the uh, Donatello and Botticelli. So Donatello, 
He's known for his bronze work. He has the gayer of the Davids. Can you believe, like, you know the stone date. You're going to talk about, like, Michelangelo's. I'm going to talk about Michelangelo's yeah. David. But there's a bunch of Davids. There's, there's a famous character in the Bible. There's a Davids. Yes. If you look at this bronze David, he's, like, very preteen. He's very, like, soft boy. His leg is, like, because he's stepping on Goliath, right? And his leg is very, like, like sexy. And he's, like, looking He's like looking at his leg and then like his sword is like very phallic the way it's positioned. And he all he has on is a hat and like socks or like little gladiator shoes. And so this is the first nude that's been like sculpted since prehistory, I guess, since like the Greeks. I mean, people have been like, oh, put clothes on since antiquity. Yeah. Yeah. He's a very so he's a very like femme boy though. He's he's a he's a boy of our time. Da, yeah, and Donatello and Brunelleschi of Duomo, they are like BFFs and I they they do go on like a gay art trip to Rome. There's also they they're like competitive with each other. They like drive each other to get better because Donatello he does like a a trinity and Brunelleschi's like, yo, your Jesus looks kind of like a peasant or something. And Donatello's like, yeah, I'm, I'm being humanist. Like, I'm being of the time. He's like, of the people. And they, like, go to get dinner. They go back to Brunelleschi's house. And Brunelleschi has, like, made his own trinity and, like, put it in his house to, like, sort of be, you know, to show Donatello. And Donatello is apparently, like, so shocked. He, like, drops all the food on the floor. And he's like... But I don't even need to eat dinner now because I'm full. I'm, like, satisfied. Because, like, Brunelleschi, yeah, he, like, he owned him. And uh, Botticelli, right? Yeah, Botticelli is, like, the birth of Venus. Yeah, very famous painting. It is. Because it's mythology, right? It's not, like, Catholicy. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a Christian religious figure. Like, there's the Zephyr, like, the winds are, like, personified by people like nature is like personified by people and it's kind of like this it's it's the intersection of like a goddess and nature because she doesn't have clothes but she's about to be clothed by flowers you know yeah it's a very pagan yeah piece of art so like the church probably like frowned on it because like you were really only supposed to paint stuff for the church and the church had so much money right they didn't pay taxes and they got a share of like all the commerce and everything that was going on so yeah, the church had been commissioning all the artwork for the last thousand years or so. You're like, where are we going to put this? What we put this next to? We can't put, you know, come on. But there's a, a guy who designed T-shirts, and he was like, well, now this. Let me put her on this. Yes. No, on this, this college is, dorm room poster. That's what I'm talking about. And then, like, we don't hear much of Botticelli. Um, he gets very dark. He, I think he lives for a while. He gets, like, very dark and does all these apocalyptic stuff later on but he it's kind of like he's like the end of the early renaissance and then we get kicked into like noting there's a continuum here it's not that like donatello is just working in isolation either uh all of these like famous artists had like workshops that were full like businesses like large businesses they had like a bunch of patrons they would do artwork on commission like compete in these contests in the city of florence but also have wealthy patrons or merchants who would buy art from them 
and so like Donatello had like a workshop. He had apprentices. He had like dozens of people working for him. And if you were a, a talented aspiring artist when you were a teenager at the age of like 12 to 15 or so, you would leave your family and go live like, and generally if you were from anywhere around Florence, you would like moving to New York, you'd move to Florence to like make it big. You get an apprenticeship in one of these workshops and then you'd like kind of, you know, learn how to, how to, how to get good. Um, and then you would do a lot of the work. So like Donatello had a, he had his own like students that he was bringing along. Um, so that one of those students that uh, Donatello was bringing along was Andrea Verrocchio. We talked about him, right? Architect, did we? Um, I don't really know much about Verrocchio. Okay. The reason I know Verrocchio is because one of Verrocchio's students was this young, this beautiful young man named Leonardo da Vinci. Oh. So Leonardo da Vinci's like drag grandfather was <laughs> was Donatello, his painting grandfather. Um, <laughs> I'm just thinking of the the, Don, the Lady Gaga the the Donatello song. Yeah, Donatello. So da Vinci is we're now into like the the mid 1400s to late 1400s, and da Vinci is credited with sort of the development of the high Renaissance style. Da Vinci makes his name as a painter. Uh, he's born out of wedlock, so Da Vinci is where he's from. So his full name is Leonardo di Ser Piero Da Vinci. And Piero was his dad's name. But his dad was like, you can't have this. <laughs> yeah, or he just shortened it. But he was just Leonardo from Vinci, which is 20 miles outside Florence. I don't know. It's like if you have a friend, if you're like, oh, yeah, that's, uh, I don't know, that's Texas Pete over there. <laughs> it's like, well, that's Pete from Texas. Uh, so he, yeah, so, so like he, he moves to Florence in the mid 1460s to make it big. Uh, in the age of 14, he becomes a, it's called a studio boy, a garzone, mm -hmm. not garzone, but garzone is a studio boy, uh, in Verrocchio's workshop, who was the leading painter in, in Florence at his time, since he, you know, had followed, uh, Donatello. This is right around when Donatello dies. So they probably met, but Donatello was an old man when Leonardo like just started his apprenticeship, um, so he graduates from Studio Boy to Apprentice at 17 and then is in training for another seven years. And he met a bunch of other famous painters while in the workshop, including Botticelli. Oh, wow. And Botticelli was like, I'm in my dark phase. Don't talk to me. Maybe. Um, so he, he learned like a whole bunch of technical skills. He's in this workshop with a bunch of other artists. So they taught them like, and again, they didn't necessarily distinguish between a lot of this. So he learns chemistry metallurgy, metalworking, plaster casting, leatherworking, mechanics, and woodwork, as well as drawing, painting, sculpting, and modeling. And he modeled uh, a lot, supposedly young Leonardo. Everybody's used to the sketch of him that one of Leonardo's assistants did when he's much older with the big white beard, whatever, but apparently he was like a very, very beautiful like studio boy and uh, would, would model for some of the sculptures. Uh, so he became... You know, initially his fame is for his achievements as a painter, which include The Last Supper and The Mona Lisa. Um, and The Vitruvian well, Man. Well, this is one of his sketches. Vitruvian Man is a sketch. So Vitruvian Man, which you just mentioned, is he became known later and quite possibly more famous because of his notebooks. So in his notebooks, he made drawings and notes on a variety of subjects. 
which include everything. Anatomy, astronomy, botany, cartography, painting, and paleontology. Wait, you put dinosaurs? Y- yeah. Well, probably not dinosaurs, but <laughs> paleontology. He was digging up bones. I guess they had them. Uh, and then, yeah, his, his application of mathematical proportion, which he borrowed very much from the Greeks, but that's what like Vitruvian Man is, right? Showing the proportions, like ideal proportions of a man. Yeah, it was ori- although that was originally developed by a Roman architect, Vitruvius, back in like 30 B.C., he rediscovered. Leonardo just sketched it. Yeah, it's his notebook, so I don't know. He's sketching it. But uh, yeah, his, it's 13,000 pages worth of notes that were like that he left behind when he died, which is, I mean, it's wild. That's like several pages a day that he was writing of these, like, these ideas. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the Mona Lisa. Um, well, wait, the, the Last Supper he did first, right? I think that was one of his first bangers. Yes, you're right. We'll Which is a Vit- fabulous example of foreshortening. Vitruvian Man is 1490. Yeah, The Last Supper was actually was not painted in Florence, right? He like had a uh, he he like hopped between cities a lot. He's, he between hop, um, I feel like he half of it was like exilings, getting angry at people. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of these guys were hotheads and would get into arguments. They would as get well. arguments. They would get charged. He got charged with being with sodomy. He had to leave a different pope. Like the Medici's would go it's into not, pope. Let's walk through this systematically. Okay. okay. Last um, Supper. Why is it an example? Last Supper is is yeah. Oh, the I guess his most famous early painting is the Virgin of the Rocks. Virgin so it was, the- was painted in 1483. To 1485. Yes, but the Last Supper is like the Last Supper is yeah 1490s. And what because it shows the difference of it shows like a real difference of art from the dark, the the middle the dark ages. The use of perspective is very dramatic in it. If you look at around the actual table going on, the room that they're in is like super deep and like uses perspective in a vanishing point. And you're like, wow, he really used a ruler to like mark out th- that like vanishing point. It's pretty, it's pretty sick. In the Middle Ages, they would just draw the thing. It would be flat, but the thing would be like bigger. Like if you want, yeah, Jesus would just be like three times bigger than everyone else. Yeah. Or would have like a halo. <laughs> yes. So, and it's, and it's done in a very realistic style as yeah. well. Yeah, they're at a which diner. Which is a, a distinctive part of the High Renaissance uh, painting style. Um, and so those those were both painted in Milan, though. He was not in Florence at this time. And then in 1500, he moves back to Florence. And uh, what there, he did a study for the Virgin and Child with St. Anne. So by this point, he's an established, like, very famous painter. And then in 1501, he paints the Mona Lisa. And the Mona Lisa is... Uh, we get this from Vasari, Giorgio Vasari, the historian we mentioned earlier, uh, reported just in like some notes or whatever. Apparently, the Mona Lisa uh, is based on Lisa del Giacondo, and that's this is called the Lisa del Giacondo theory. Yeah, she's the wife of Francesco del Giacondo. Her name is Lisa. Mona is just a shorthand form of Madonna or Madam, or like the wife. I guess it also could have meant at the time, like in the Florentine dialect. So it's just like, yeah, the wife Lisa. Is, and it's just is like some girl, just like his friend's wife. It's his, yeah, like it's one of, it probably was a commission. He was like, the guy was like, yeah, can you paint a picture of my wife for her birthday? It's coming up. 
And Da Vinci was like, yeah, sure. But that would explain famous work. Well, that would explain why she's like not a she's not a handsome woman. (laughs) She's not right. She's not beautiful like the models who were actually chosen at the time, even by like those contemporary beauty standards at the time. She still wasn't good looking. You had to you you had to be a man. (laughs) No, but like Botticelli, for example, is known for having like curvier models, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Or like right if the. You know the like the Venus like painting. She's like very curvy, but is like beautiful, like classically beautiful. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And the Mona Lisa is not. But so the Mona Lisa was. It's one of the first paintings to have an imaginary landscape. Like he didn't paint her in front of anything really. There's mm-hmm. sort of a path off to the side, and then there's some weird icy mountains in the background. Um. She has her enigmatic, uh, gaze where she like is maybe smiling. She's smirking. Has no eyebrows. Recently, I guess some guy did some molecular, like, I, I don't know, technical imaging and said that there used to be eyebrows, but they got removed from, like, overcleaning it through the centuries. Oh. Uh, it's not very big. It's a half-length portrait, so it's something like, you know, it's just a couple feet. That's the husband. Feet. He's like, I don't want something big, you know? It's not like a big birthday. <laughs> yeah. It's... It's, she's just, you know. And then a key thing that's that's in it is uh, Leonardo both, like, he coined the term and used it a lot, sfumato, which is just flocking, sort of fuzzy, flogging, flocking, a flock, flocking powder is like something you put to make it look like fuzzy or puffy, like puff paint. Yeah, what is it? Mainly in the corners of the mouth and in the corners of the eyes, which creates an ambiguous mood from its soft blending. And he did not outline anything. Yeah, by not drawing outlines. Oh, sfumato is yeah, no outlines as well. Soft blending. Which makes her appear alive to an unusual extent. He, he, the husband was like, she's a little self-conscious about her age. You gotta. It's hard to say why it's such a famous painting. <laughs> Don't give her but any smile lines. <laughs> it is the most valuable painting in the world. It's so weird, though. It's like, why? What? Huh? It was like, I think in the eighties, it was valued at a hundred million dollars for insurance purposes, which means today it's worth like a billion dollars. Wow! 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 Yeah, uh, and then yeah, as a final, I don't know, some some notes on his notebooks again. Is that like so now he's an established painter? Uh, what? Oh, Salvatore Mundi uh, is his other another very famous Leonardo painting. There's only like 25 attributed paintings for him, yeah. so he probably was much busier. But stuff gets lost. He had plans. He had a, he he. Do you know about his tanks? Yes. So in his notebook, his guns. He has flying machines. A tank, concentrated solar power, an adding machine. So he has a computer in there. Yeah, and uh, uh, like designs for ships and helicopters. And so they like, yeah, they didn't have the technology to even build any of that stuff at the time. He just sort of sketched it out. And then uh, as you talked about, he probably was gay. Uh, he never does. He writes a lot in his notes, like his notebook with all these ideas and the pictures of tanks and stuff, uh, but never talks about any romantic interests. Vasari described him as having great physical beauty and infinite grace. He loved animals. He was likely a vegetarian and he had a habit of purchasing caged birds and releasing them. Oh, yeah, very sweet. He was accused of sodomy when he was like 24, but the charges were dismissed because the like the prostitute was like related to one of the to Lorenzo Medici. 
the prostitute wasn't a Michi, but one of the accused. Oh, in because it was like a, it was a, it was a gangbang. Okay, this was related to Lorenzo de Medici, yeah. and so the family got uh used their influence to get them acquitted. So Michelangelo was born in 1475, uh, lived almost forever, lived until 1564, <laughs> so he lived 90 years, and he got famous very young. And he was a sculptor, painter, architect, and poet. He was born in Caprese which today is known as Caprese Michelangelo. So the town is now, that he's born is now named after him. It's in Tuscany, so also outside Florence, um, and presumably where they invented the Caprese salad, which is a delicious mm. salad. Two of his best-known works are his sculpture of David and Pieta, which is a, a really striking sculpture of like a, it's like a saint, like over the knee of like some other saint or whatever who's like holding her. And the, like you look at it, and the, the fact that it's carved out of marble is like dumbfounding. Um, Anyway, he sculpted both of those before he was 30 years old. So if you think you're too old and you'll never make it, it's true because you're never going to be as good as Michelangelo was. Well, unless <laughs> unless you're Raphael. <laughs> and then he started getting all of these different commissions. He got a whole bunch of popes, like hired him to work on stuff. If Leonardo was a Renaissance man just for the sheer amount of stuff he did and for writing all this stuff in his notebooks, which a lot of which didn't get published, so it didn't really impact science... Michelangelo just worked like he was just as talented as Leonardo and worked like twice as hard and is just super prolific. So in addition to these like world famous sculptures, he creates two of the most influential frescoes in the history of Western art. So he, he does scenes from Genesis on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and he does the Last Judgment on its altar wall. Can, we, can I just say, though, that that's remarkable because he literally hadn't done like painting, let alone he'd never done a fresco in his life but he hadn't done painting period since he was like 13. He was like a sculptor. And then Pope Julius was like, I need to get rid of Pope, Pope Alexander, who was a Borgia, who was like very, very corrupt, had like all the stuff in, in the chapel, like, you know, decorated. And then Julius was like, we need to like cover this. Hey, Michelangelo, can you do a fresco? And Michelangelo was like, sure. But he hadn't painted anything and like had never done a fresco before. So that's it's like super triple impressive because of that. He was dismissive of painting. He actually thought it was a lower art form than sculpture. <laughs> yeah. So Pope Julius commissions him to build the Pope's tomb. He spent 40 years on it, basically, because he kept getting really mad at the Pope and then leaving Rome <laughs> and going back to Florence. And they would argue all the time. While he's working on this commission for the Pope's tomb in the early 1500s, he leaves Rome in secret for Florence I guess the Florentine government at some point, they were like, please go back and finish working for the Pope. It like, looks really bad for us. But while he's in Florence, he paints the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, which took him four years, 1508 to 1512. So there's an account that Bramante, who was working on the building of St. Peter's Basilica, resented Michelangelo's commission for the Pope's tomb. So to get back at Michelangelo, he suggested to the Pope to also commission Michelangelo in a medium with which he was unfamiliar so that he might fail at the task. Yeah. Michelangelo was originally commissioned to paint the 12 apostles on the triangular pendentives that support the ceiling. So just to do the corners of the ceiling and to cover the central part of the ceiling with ornament, just some tin work or something. Michelangelo persuaded the Pope to give him a free hand and proposed a different and more complex scheme representing the creation, the fall of man, the promise of salvation through the prophets, and the genealogy of Christ. So it's basically, he's like, let me just, instead of the 12 disciples, let me do the entire doctrine of the Catholic Church on this ceiling. It's 500 square meters of ceiling, contains over 300 figures. Vermonte's plan didn't really work out. He was like, he's like, he won't be good at painting. Tell him yeah. to do some painting for, 
for this. He'll, he'll look bad. And he was like, let me just paint the greatest painting that's ever been. However, painted. he never finished it. You know that, right? It's the scene chapel, not that. <laughs> didn't he finish didn't... the tomb, didn't finish the ceiling. I mean, I don't think he has any work that's like finished. I bet he got close. I, I guess mean, he kept getting mad at ceiling. he kept getting mad at the Pope, I guess, and and walking off. Also, he didn't like the uh, the plaster dripping on his face. He wrote a poem about it, and he was oh. like, he was like, I hate this plaster. His initial commission to do the Pope's tomb, which made him leave Florence for the first time, he left. Uh, he had this painting, the Battle of Caschina, which he also did not finish. So yeah. I guess he kept getting new gigs before like finishing the old one. And he was he was constantly mad. He was like a curmudgeon old man when he was like 30. And he thought he was going to die. He is writing. He was always like, I'm I'm dying. But he lived the longest. At age 74, I guess St. Peter's Basilica still wasn't done, which Bramante like was working on his rival. So he succeeded like Antonio de Sangolio the Younger. He as the architect of St. Peter's Basilica when he was 74 and made major changes to the design, he was known as Il Divino, the Divine One. Like mm. during his life, people called him the Divine One. And his, uh, there's a, a word they invented to describe his style, the terribilita. Terrible what? <laughs> yeah, the ability to instill a sense of awe in viewers of, of a work of art. So then there were like tons of people tried to imitate and it's true, if you go even look at, like, the David or, like, the Sistine Chapel ceiling or something, it is, like, it will. It's, like, awe-inspiring. His style got its own name called Mannerism. It is, like, post-High Renaissance uh, and pretty much brought about by Michelangelo, uh, which is basically, like, trying to, I guess, strike a sense of awe into the viewer of your art, and it's also a style of architecture. And so where High Renaissance art emphasizes proportion, balance, and ideal beauty... Right, they're redoing the classic Greek like styles. Mannerism exaggerates such qualities, often resulting in compositions that are asymmetrical or unnaturally elegant. It's like airbrushed almost. <laughs> it's like an airbrushed photo is like mannerism. Do you oh fun fact, do you know that the David and like all those marble statues, they were actually painted? Because everyone's like, oh, they're just like the Greek ones, but they're not because they were painted. I think a number of the Greek ones might have also been painted. Oh, maybe. Though. The Greek ones, the paint definitely didn't survive. I'm surprised that like none of the the paint on the Italian ones survived because a lot of them got moved indoors like pretty quickly. I don't. They were using like watercolor. <laughs> yeah, Michelangelo's David was originally going to be, I think, in a church as part of like with a bunch of other sculptures, and it was so good that they put it in the middle of a plaza, and now it's they moved it indoors like a few hundred years they ago because the they were like, this is too good. His he was also dissecting a lot of bodies, and he would make everyone like ripped too. That was that's him. Like he's like if if you took like Botticelli's people and they got to a gym, you know? Yeah, sure. Like yeah, he he's like CrossFit for everyone. Jesus, here's a, here's your tenth ab. Like let's go. They I mean they're all like super ripped, like jock, like ah, yeah. Cool. So now. We move on to our fourth Ninja Turtle. Raphael, the only straight one. Yeah? Yeah. So he was actually, so unlike Michelangelo, who I believe was orphaned, Raphael, I mean, I guess they were all kind of like orphaned <laughs> before they turned 18. Um, but Raphael's father was a royal goldsmith. And he just like, Raphael absorbed skills, like very, he was kind of like, 
a succubus or like or osmosis like you put him next to like a great artist and he just like absorbed their skills and then like leveled up overnight he was also friends with he was friends with Bramante and I guess Bramante kind of used him to like pit him against Michelangelo Mm. (laughs) a little bit he really was in awe of Michelangelo and Michelangelo like didn't know who he was. He was like, I don't know. I'm too busy. I'm just work, work, working all the time. I'm from New York. I work all the time. Um, And he really like wanted to see, Raphael really wanted to see what Michelangelo was up to. So Bramante was like, I can sneak you in to like show you. So he, he took him in like at night to see the Sistine Chapel. And apparently Michelangelo bought so much rope and like canvas and stuff to to secure and like cover his area so no one could look at it that like the rope merchant was like able to retire from it like he really did try to like secure it so that no one could see what he was doing but Raphael and Bermonte like snuck in at, at night and um Raphael like absorbed all his his skills Raphael had also been commissioned by Julius to do the Raphael rooms. The private library at the Vatican Palace. And he had already started doing like some frescoes in there, but after he saw Michelangelo's stuff, he was like, ah, do over. Raphael puts like a little nod to Michelangelo. Like he puts a little hint in his like newer fresco, a little like, you know, like props to the master and Michelangelo sees this and he's like, what the fuck? Like he's so mad. And like Pope Julius is like, I love all of this. You know, it's great. You guys are doing great. And also, I will say the the School of Athens is really dope because I did not know that the School of Athens is a fresco. I thought it was a painting. Mm. But like fresco is is basically like plaster plus paint and you have to like do it really, really fast because it dries. And it's like imagine doing drywall, but like having to paint a masterpiece while doing it. It's like crazy. So yeah, the School of Athens fresco on the wall. I thought it was just a giant painting. I'm very, that's probably like my favorite fact that I learned. Super impressed. I will tell you who some of the people represent because Raphael, he's like a little baby, baby angel, like dewy, dewy cheeked youth. And he's just like, you know, he's like, I'm so talented. I'm, I'm young. I'm 26. You know, I, not a care in the world. Um, I'm going to paint my friends in these great people. So their faces represent his friends. And the cool thing about the School of Athens is that it's taking all of these great thinkers and putting them together, people that would not have met because of like time and place. It does look like a bunch of men in togas arguing. Right? Yes. That's kind of the, that's what it is. Plato is Leonardo. Mm. And he's pointing to the sky, which is to suggest his theory of forms and like of the universe. Ar- we don't know who Aristotle is. Um, maybe just like his buddy, but his hand is outstretched, which is an example of empiricism and also a great example of foreshortening. <laughs> that arm, right. great foreshortening. <laughs> Good job. Good job, Raphael. Euclid is Bermonte, the, you know, one who got him the job and Michelangelo's rival. And who is an architect. Yes. So it makes sense. He's using Euclidean yeah. geometry. And then... Ptolemy and Zoroaster, the two astrologists, they're hanging out with Raphael, which I think is so great. It's like, there's been dating that says that Heraclitus, who's like a curmudgeon mathematician dude, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. 
was added a little bit later. And guess who he is? Uh, is he Michelangelo? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and he's by he's himself. Mad. Yeah. Well, I think he still had reverence for him. He just was like, wow, like Grandpa Michelangelo being a, being an old grump with all his knowledge, even though like Michelangelo's like 33. Uh, and he dies at 37. Yeah, why'd he die so young? They don't know. Uh, Vasari says that it's because he, he liked to fuck a lot. Uh, he had a, an, an affair that consumed him with the baker's daughter. But they think it might have been like, you know, just like whatever, a, a renaissance cold or like a bloodletting went gone, a gone renaissance wrong. cold. Yeah, he went to a doctor. Yeah, that's what the, they call the plague. <laughs> you, you got a real renaissance cold there. Yeah, he, he died like well, in like 12 days after he got sick. To add a little context, because we do keep mentioning Vasari as our like, he's our primary source. Um, so Vasari's book that has a bunch of these biographies and all these little factoids and stories in it, um, it's got the best title. It's called Lives of the Most Excellent Painters, Sculptors, and Architects, published in 1550, yes. which is where the when the term Renaissance or Renaissance was coined. And Vasari is kind of the first historian, which we all now take for granted, that there's sort of like antiquity the dark ages slash middle ages and then like the enlightenment or like modernity is like that three part view of history is how Vasari saw history. So even he like when the Renaissance was happening, he was like, yeah, we're past the dark ages. This is like the new era. And he pretty much was onto something because historians today pretty much write about like the Renaissance and enlightenment as like the beginning of the modern era. Yes. So yeah, that's, I guess one little aside about, is it Vasari? Yeah, Vasari, he's the, he's the historian who's bad at art. He's very bad at art. But he's good at writing about people who are good at art. Yeah, his his own mannerist paintings were more admired in his lifetime than afterward. Yeah. I, probably just because his friends were like, I don't want him to write bad things about me. Yeah, maybe not. He's like, say it's good. Say it's good or I'll, I'll spill all your tea in my tell-all book. Should we talk about Machiavelli? low renaissance started with writers the high renaissance kind of ends with a writer machiavelli yeah he wrote the prince master strategist he did not not to be confused with the little prince different no it's very different yeah so what's like machiavelli's background is he was he he wasn't a renaissance man was he he was just a writer well he also was a mayor whatever you know like oh, a, a consorti or yeah and then it, it was the whole Medici um, Borgia thing where, like, he was kind of, like, con a consort, like, under the Borgias, but then the Medicis came back. So he was, like, he was, like, talking shit about the Medicis, and they were, like, we can hear you. And they came back, and they were, like, torture for you. And they put him in, a, like, basically a skin the cat moment for, like, he just had to hang, like, in a skin the cat for quite some time. They were like, you think about what you did. And then they they were like, okay, we'll we'll send you off to like to Tuscany. You can you can just go there. And you would think that that's not like that bad, but Machiavelli, more than anything else, he really, really loved the Roman Republic. 
and he loved government. He loved government and structure, and like this made him very sad that he that he had to basically go to like the Florida of uh, of Italy for his retirement, and that he wasn't allowed to, in the government. He's like, I just want to go to a meeting where there's like an agenda. They were like, no. So then he was like desperately trying to get back on the Medici's like good side. So he was like writing them cute little things, and then he was like, I have an idea. So he was like, okay, Medici, because you're you're about to be like, you know, governing body again. Let me let me write a little like manual for you, like wink, wink. But it actually, the prince is actually, um, I believe it's Borgia. It might be Alexander. It's one of the Borgias. So the prince is actually the Borgia, and it's it's basically like he's he's slandering like the Borgias. But he's like, I know better than to like, you know, put my feelings in on paper because like last time I did that, I ended up in a skin the cat. So, so he's, some some regard yeah. the the princess satire. It's basically a handbook for governing. It it's like if you are a monarch or like local mayor or like prince who rules over like a a, a kingdom or whatever, here's how you should like handle power. So like, when do you use violence? When should you not use violence? Like. How should you deal with your enemies? Yeah. I, he's like, here's times where it worked. Here's times where it like didn't work. So it's con- it's in, so- in many ways con- comparable to, I guess, like Sun Tzu's, like the art of war, which is a guidebook for also. But the prince also explicitly takes into account politics and like nonviolent uses of power. So it's not just about war. Uh, and the prince very much deals with like how to be a a benevolent ruler. So it even deals with like the idea of like, how brutal should your police be? Because like, if you don't enforce the law or like have punishments and you're like very lenient, then there will be like more crime, which is worse for people. Whereas if you are like very strict, maybe that's actually better for everybody because then there's more order. Mm, well, oh, sorry. So it is based on Cesare Borgia, who is, he witnessed his like tyranny. Mm-hmm. And he's giving the book to Medici to like, he couldn't say like, hey, it's about like the Borgias because he was like, what if the Borgia like come back and they're in power? Like I'm going to be killed. So he was like, I, in my like research and like my view of it now is that he was like just trying to get back to a government. He was like, please, Medici, like let me let me come and like sit in on like the community board again. Here's a book that's like about your enemy. LOL. But that and the, the Medici's were kind of like, Meh. but what really won them over is that he he had an atlas of like Florence made, and they were like, now this this is some quality material. It's it's also worth noting that Florence at the time was, and they were like aware of it. Like Machiavelli very much appreciated it. Like they really were sort of a democracy, and that like they sort of had de- democratic government, or at least a republic in that sense which made them unique because they were surrounded by these other city-states that were ruled by, uh, like, local dictators, basically, or, like, merchants who had just, like, seized power. And the rest of Europe was run by, like, you know, kings and various monarchs. So at the time, to have, like, a local governing council or governing board, even if it, like, kept being the Medici in power eventually, um, was, like, a novel thing. And when we talked about the beginning of the Renaissance too, there was like when a thing that made Florence very much stand out is like that they 
narrowly defended themselves from, uh, I think it was like Milan, and like had a dictator who ran that city uh, who tried to conquer Florence back in like the like late 1300s. And Florence like succeeded and Florence like viewed it and became a part of the city's character. That, like we're a republic and we defended ourselves against like a tyrant dictator. And so I think that's like Machiavelli very much identified with that too. It's like the city spirit. Yeah, he he loved he he loved his republic. But I just think that's funny that he was like he was like please it was it was Lorenzo Medici that he was like please and the, Lorenzo was just like this atlas he was like fuck the prince but this atlas though now he's like that's where I live and he has a I think a really great quote about his personal library. Oh yeah, read it. Yeah. His own library because he was in exile and he wrote about how like he kept a, you know, a journal and everything about how sad it's he like, was to be in exile. It's like all I have are my books to have sex with. Mhm. Pretty much. Yeah. Well, he talks about he's yeah, he's in like Tuscany on his like he has like an estate. He's like still pretty wealthy. But but but, the, uh, the meetings, he's not allowed. He doesn't like that. Yeah. He's very flexible shoulders now though after the torture. So he says uh when evening comes, I return home and enter my study. On the threshold, I take off my workday clothes, covered with mud and dirt, and put on the garments of court and palace. Fitted out appropriately, I step inside the venerable courts of the ancients, where, solicitously received by them, I nourish myself on that food that alone is mine, and for which I was born. For which I was born, Ariel. I am unashamed yeah. to converse with them and to question them about the motives for their actions, and they, out of their human kindness, answer me. And for hours at a time, I feel no boredom. I forget all my troubles. I do not dread poverty, and I am not terrified by death. I absorb myself into them completely. That's right. He was cosplaying like he was in the Roman Republic. Like he would dress up. He was, he was the first cosplayer. He was like order in my Roman court. But I do love that that concept, which still exists, is that when you open a book, you get to converse with, like, you know the greatest minds in human history. So he I saw himself, that. especially too, if you're like living in Florence at the time and you're like, man, I wish I could have been a Greek. Like, I wish I could have been in Athens like 2,000 years Rome, ago. That would have been Rome. so cool. It was Rome. No, they like the Athenians. The whole thing is they're reviving all the Greek texts, right? The Roman Republic. He was obsessed with the Roman Republic and Cicero. That was like, oh, okay. laugh to him. And he would, co he, I swear, he would cosplay. He would be like, I'm Cicero's. Like, yeah, I'm at the community board of Cicero. <laughs> Kind of ironic. And they how, want a new park. Right, at this time, like, Rome still is a city filled with, like, like the Colosseum is there, right? Like, Roman yeah. architecture is still around, but it's all kind of, like, ruins and has fallen into disrepair. And southern Italy is a lot poorer than northern Italy at the time. So it is, like, yeah, it's pretty wild. I'm trying to think of any comparable, I don't know, like, situation like that. Like, there isn't really one. Detroit? Yeah, Detroit. It is. Yeah, Rome was Detroit at this time. That's a really good example. And you could go see like the you're gorgeous like, ruined theater that everybody would go to. You're like, there's eight miles. But the you know the Pope is still located in Rome, I guess. So they've got a they've at least got a nice palace down there. But yeah, meanwhile Florence is like New York City. So that's that's Machiavelli and Vasari. So we're now in like kind of the the late Renaissance. <clears throat> we're in the like kind of it both like, I mean it maybe dies out. In uh, Florence, there's some there's some backsliding. It's basically the church. Some like, and there are like various different instances of pushback against uh, Renaissance ideals. But at the same time, it is now spread uh, both to like the rest of Northern Italy, and it makes its way into like Europe, like all those like uh, works of literature and like the Greek texts that they had rescued and everything like make their way 
into the zeitgeist in the rest of Europe, which then leads to the Enlightenment a hundred or so years later. But uh, for the the church got poor, they like got a little poorer and more. Yeah, several things happened all at once. Like one one thing people note is the it's like in the very late 1400s, even though a lot of these like Michelangelo and Raphael are busy in the like early to mid 1500s. There was like for a short time in the 1400s, this uh, uh, this monk who's like very austere uh, gets power in Florence just for four years. But during that time, he destroys a bunch of Renaissance artwork. Oh, oh my God! What is he? Giro he sounds more like a monkey than a monk. What oh, is he? Girolamo Savonarola. <laughs> he he had the bonfire of the vanities in uh, 1497, where they burn a bunch of works of art in the public square in Florence, which is the, also the name of that Tom Wolfe book. Yeah, wow. But, uh, yeah, but vanities, right, is that it's like he's like explicitly like these are works of hubris that like doesn't represent God. They're not austere enough. He's like, stop the tits. The women just put them away. Well, he's, some of these, he's like, these are pagan paintings. They're like not Christian, he's like, like who religious is this? figures. This, he yeah. comes in with the, the Venus. He's like, who the fuck? What the <laughs> fuck? Who is this? Who yeah. put her here? Stop well, Mary. Por- pornography in clothes. the church? What are you doing? Put, come, put a loincloth yeah. for fuck's sake. He's an angry Italian. He's just like cursing. <laughs> also like the stability. This was like a period of stability with the Medici just ruling Florence for a long time and having enough money and like enough prosperous trade that they could like keep people yeah. from invading and and like keep an army around uh but then like uh in the i guess the late 1500s there's the italian wars uh where the italian city states go back to fighting with each other um in the mid 1500s spanish and german troops sack rome yet again um which almost ends the role of the, like basically the the papacy runs out of money cuz they have to like fight off the Spanish and German troops, so they can't fund art anymore. The funding dries up, but meanwhile, it like you know spreads around the rest of Italy. And then a final thing that maybe ended, well, that definitely ended like Florence's dominant position in global trade was Vasco da Gama, another another Italian actually, another Renaissance Italian, who in in 1498 reaches India, um, and so suddenly like you can get to the Orient through shipping by going the long way all the way around uh, Africa or whatever without having to uh, traverse overland like to get through Italy. Um, so yeah, that, that, that means like the Atlantic ports of Lisbon, Seville, Bristol, and London become much more important in global trade after the 1500s. So that's why the Renaissance, Renaissance. it wound down. But its ideals were not forgotten because they all showed up again during the Enlightenment. It's true. And we didn't even talk about, we talked very much about the authors and the humanists, um, but the explorers. There's like a whole era of Italian explorers, right? Like Vasco da Gama and one Christopher Columbus. Mm-hmm. That's true. Okay. So what should we learn from all of this? Are we in a renaissance right now? Not that I, I don't think so. What rebirth is happening? Well, I feel like, you know, we just had our plague, right? Um, nightlife is re is like rebirthing. Nightlife is reinvigorating. Also, like Ariel, what we need is a Michelangelo of our time. Yeah, all I, I mean, there's a new dome getting built <laughs> in 
Oh, Il Duomo would be a cool name for a nightclub, right? wouldn't There's it? You had a cool dome nightclub. A new dome being built in Brooklyn. And also, I feel like the Renaissance print, like crop top, is super in again, sort of painting. We're having a renaissance of late 90s and Y2K culture right now, it seems like. Yeah, which is which was a renaissance also because like Y2K was like a rebirth because everyone thought they were going to die in yeah, and the yeah. dot com recession in the late nineties. Exactly. 90s. Do you think the Renaissance really happened? A lot of people are like, it's not a real thing because they're like the the poor people didn't know that it was happening. No, I mean it seems like a very real thing to have been around like I said, I bet it's the same thing as if you were like, was there really an art scene in New York City in like the eighties and nineties? Well there will but you knew you knew but like people then were out there. Like they were like, we're the artists, but like we have mass media to cover it now, and you but and you could point now after the fact to all these famous figures, you can be like Warhol and Basquiat, and like you know all yeah. these like famous bands that came out of the the era. Like they they definitely like it was a cultural movement. Were there any women of the Renaissance? No. <laughs> I mean, there's models, I guess. There's like, like one artist. I for- there's I like daughters of the various merchants, but like. No, women didn't get to really have any power or like roles in society during that time. In like, oh, I mean, Catherine Medici, she was a, a witch and had an affair with her astronomer. She poisoned a bunch of people. Oh, why didn't you tell us about that? Yeah, well, she's she's cool. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't really a renaissance. It's kind of more of a death for the people that came into contact with. Yeah, I suppose there are a bunch of women who maybe were either like widows or they inherited estates who then could become patrons. And the Medici like line actually goes up to the to the Louis line. Did you know that? No. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, it does because they you know this is when they're trying to like gain good graces with Paris. Like that whole, they're like, you have to marry. It's so funny, their solution. They're like, you have to marry so that the two countries can get along. And it's like. Yeah, in her marriage. Crucial. Crucial for royal families. Yeah. So their line, uh, Marie Medici, her son is Louis yeah, Marie VIII. Marie Medici's son was Louis VIII. Look at that. Yeah. So, and then, yeah, there's like, they get up, they get up in that house of, of France. But yeah, Catherine Medici, she was. She was she ruled. Um, she was a regent, right? She like ruled without a husband for a while, just because her husband died. But um, if you've been reborn, can you leave us a five star review? Yeah, help our help Renaissance our I don't know five star help a f- uh, patron mm-hmm. be the Medici to our Michelangelo. There you go. Um, and yeah, shout out Chef Maki. Thanks for joining us. And uh, Iluniani, thanks for first time chatter on the Twitch. Thanks for joining us. And I suppose if you want to learn more about the Renaissance, you can go to Florence and see Mm -hmm. a lot of it yourself. Yeah. Thank you, Danny. Our Mona Lisa, not in Florence. Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. It's in the Louvre. Have you seen Mona Lisa? The French took it. No, I didn't want to wait. I've I've been to Paris and like... um, I didn't even go to the Louvre while I was there because like I just would. to get in was like a three hour wait or something. And then it's like another wait to go see the Mona Lisa. It didn't seem worth it. We've all seen her. Am I right? She really got around. I did go to Florence. Florence is, I think, the most beautiful city I've ever seen. Oh, it really is gorgeous. And the, the Florentine architecture is like it's all kind of white brick and plaster and these red tiled roofs. 
So when the sun's and it's like a, it's a city <laughs> in the hills. It's in the Tuscan it's hills. It's just like Pizza Hut. <laughs> yes, Pizza Hut. I, it's definitely a picture of a Florentine villa. I don't know why they called it a hut, but uh, uh, yeah. And then, uh, but but if you go up into the hills and you can watch the sunset over the city, and it's like one of the most striking, like beautiful sights. Ooh, can it really? Pizza, speaking of Pizza Hut, really like a footnote. I have a footnote for yeah. you. Um, that Brunelleschi, he, you know, he like had people helping him, and his workers were like trying to. They were like, "Yeah, we got to go home. It's like the end of the day." And he and he was like, he built like a little um, cafeteria for them in the Duomo, so that they could, they could keep working, so they could have dinner in there. Yeah, that's like at uh, at the silo construction site. There's a yes. <laughs> there's a coffee truck that drives around uh, East Williamsburg to all like the building sites, and they have a bunch of like sandwiches and stuff, yeah. and they do coffee. And like all the workers, it's like the ice cream truck coming by. The coffee truck pulls up, and they go, like, oh, "Coffee trucks here." Yeah, but that's I I thought of you, and I thought of like Brunelleschi. I was like, this is very very Alex thing to do. Be like, oh, you can't go. I'll I'll just put dinner in here for you. That way, you have to stay and work. Yep, exactly. Oh, yeah. for those who were interested, Pisa is close by. Like the town of Pisa is close to Florence, and but yeah. the leaning—it's kind of leaning into. Oh, I was gonna be like leaning, leaning tower into of Pisa it. is uh, it's like pre-Renaissance though. Yeah, we talked about that. They don't. Okay. No one cares okay. about that right now. Just in case anyone was interested, we did talk about it on our architecture episode. I think. Yeah, yeah. And thank you, Danny. He edits our art. Land, where no one lies about paintings, but that